sex talk. Derek and Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sex just isn't good enough. No. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. I um I'm just a little tickled because I'm fangirling. Um, I have <laughs> I have a wonderful guest with me today, and we're gonna jump right into to some serious serious stuff. But Dr. Prousey at Libros, who's a rock star sex scientist, welcome. I'm just so glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks. No, I appreciate you bringing me on. Let's see what we can chat about that might be helpful for folks. We're actually going to take a little bit different of approach today because I know that I've had sex scientists on here before. One of the things that I, I really want people to understand is how sex science actually can impact their lives and change how they see their own health. And so how do you think sex science can impact a person today today if they were listening to this podcast today what 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 could they do in their lives what what could they maybe some relief they could get yeah one of the more obvious ones is you know i used to work in behavioral medicine where we would often get patients who had sleep problems and usually the first pass you're really helping them tighten up their sleep hygiene and try to do the best they can to get to bed on time with the same circumstances, et cetera. But the funny thing about that is like in our assessments and in our treatments, it never mentions masturbation anywhere or using orgasm. Right. If you look to animal models, there are a lot of really nice animal models showing ejaculation, putting male animals to sleep. (laughs) And they're pretty sure the mechanism there is vasopressin and The weird thing is it's only been looked at in humans once and it was kind of like a secondary analysis and it didn't support improved sleep latency or quality. But I thought, well, that's weird. Um, (laughs) Because I think a lot of people do this, but you know, you got to check, like you can't assume everyone does what you do. So, or thinks what you think. So like I ran a quick MTurk of 500 people and they're all like, yes, I use masturbation to sleep at night <laughs> yes. um, and mainly to help themselves fall asleep faster. So not much, so much sleep quality, but sleep latency. So there's a good example of lots of people seem to be using it in this way. There are lots of good animal models showing why orgasm might help the sleep. And yet it's not a part of any standard you know, assessment or intervention to help people with sleep problems. And I think it should be. Exactly. If you pick up a workbook tomorrow that says fall asleep faster, it does not mention masturbation in there. It should. It really should, because I think that, you know, the data are already strongly suggestive. There's very little risk of harm, (laughs) you know, in terms of trying it as an intervention. I think the only reason we don't use that as an intervention is because of puritanism. You know, it's just people think it's weird or like, oh, you shouldn't use sex in that way kind of the old, you know, shouldn't use sex for pleasure, should be for procreation. Uh, I think that that has not died. It's just come back in a different form. Absolutely. I can tell you, even when I was doing sex offender treatment, one of the things we had, we were made to assess for is someone using sex as coping. Guess what? We all do. Yeah. Sex is useful for coping. There's another good one. (laughs) So yeah, one of the things I always laugh about is sex is really good at capturing attention. So let's imagine like you come home from work and you had just had a crap day and you're like, I just don't want to be rude around my family. (laughs) You know, I know it's going to blow over, but I am really angry. I'm really upset about what happened. And I would say, well, guess what? Sexual stimuli are really good at capturing your attention. So maybe you can't go just sit down and masturbate 
because your fantasy isn't enough to kind of come over the intense negative feelings you have from the workday. But with porn or with a vibrator or with something, you know, more intense stimulation, these things capture your attention really, really well and can help you potentially get out of that situation. And so it's the same kind of thing. Like I wouldn't say, oh, you know, you should do this every single time or in this particular way. But absolutely, it's good at, especially masturbation, improving positive emotions, decreasing negative emotions. It's really good for that. And I don't know why we just say mood is regulation is bad, that you shouldn't use sex in that way, that it's not good for that. Of course, it's good for that. There are data from 40 years showing that it's good for that. So it's more, you know, if you have feelings of guilt around it or something, well, then sure, you know, that's something you can address and talk about. But the mere fact that you use sex or stimulation, whether it's visual or vibratory, whatever, to help regulate your mood, I see no problem with. And I'm not sure why it's such a problem for the therapists more so than the patients. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and here's the reality. We actually use sex to adjust our attitudes towards our, our partners too. <laughs> Sometimes after a fight, people have sex. <laughs> we are changing our attitudes. Yeah. moods. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting phenomenon because I've always been curious about, and I've never seen anyone really study that in any physical way, like in a lab study. But that is, again, some of what we know about yeah, what promotes sex drive or promotes sexual response. Like someone, if they're in a truly angry state, should not be able to respond easily to a partner. And so I wonder if it's like the state actually isn't that negative and that they're kind of open to it. And those are the kinds of people who can have makeup sex, who have that kind of anger, or, you know, if it's just like, they feel like the anger is blown off, you know, they had an intense experience and now it's just a general increased heart rate is promoting a transfer of excitation, like it's being reinterpreted as sexual arousal or sexual response, and that promotes the makeup sex. So yeah, it's kind of interesting for me as a scientist thinking theoretically, like, how does that really work? You know, like, what is the mechanism of makeup sex? I think we as humans think, oh, my mood alteration plus sex equals bad. And ultimately, we're using it that way. And we have taken these values, kind of like you said, the Puritan, the old, old Puritan values and, and kind of masked things that we've been doing for a really long time and just made ourselves feel damn bad about it. Well, there's a funny thing too. Like there's a trend in science that there are some people now who are reporting like, oh, people who are using porn or using, well, primarily porn, but to help regulate their mood and to improve their mood, like they actually have more mood problems, more likely to be depressed. And I think, well, that's because they're using mood regulation. Like the whole reason you need to regulate your mood is because you have poor mood. So we can't blame it on the porn. Just that, you know, like you have to look at that longitudinally. And yet like the bias is so strong to make the attribution to something we think is not, we just culturally, we're assuming is not good for us without really checking out those assumptions, you know, and saying, is the porn really doing this? Or is it just the people who are engaging with it more for those purposes need something, you know, and maybe that's porn, exercise, crying in bed, you know, whatever it is we do to try and cope when we're not feeling well. And, you know, it's not that porn caused that, but it could reflect people's efforts to improve. Right. I recently did I did a video with I have a group that's for therapists learning to learn more about sex and one of the things I just did was a video about like look at the depression symptoms that you can't like chicken and egg this like if a person has depression like more than likely they're going to experience some sort of sexual side effect or maybe even you 
sex to try to manage that because it is a wonderful mood alterer. No, there was a study and the Kinsey Institute was really interested in mood and sexual arousal for a while. And they found there was a subset, I think it was about 15% of men who, when they were in a depressed mood state, their sexual desire increased. And we always think of it as decreasing because, you know, it's avolition and depression is avolitional. And so therefore the everything should be decreased in terms of motivation, but that seemed not to be the case. And they were saying exactly like, there seems to be a subset of people who are specifically using this to try and help improve themselves, you know, when they don't feel well. And I think that's worth keeping in mind. You know, it's the same way, like, okay, depression, some people gain weight, some people lose weight. Yes, it's not all one thing. It's mostly gain, (laughs) but some do lose. It depends on the manifestation. And so I think sexual arousal is kind of similar in that way. You know, it's like some, most people have decreased sexual arousal with depression, but some use it to try and improve their situation. And I don't think that that's an inherently bad thing. You know, it's just a functional difference in how they're trying to cope. You hear that folks? Functional. Functional. Functional is the word of the day. (laughs) So when it comes to like the messages that are out there, and we were kind of talking before this about the messages, the, the arguments scientifically on what we study and what we don't study are absolutely important. But like for the everyday person, what can a sex scientist tell them that that can absolutely alter their life? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know that changed my life right now. Yeah. (laughs) You know, oftentimes I encourage when I'm talking to patients, you know, I would say like treat things like an experiment, you know, that is when sex is supposed to work a certain way, are you trying something with it for whom and under what circumstances it works? You kind of get to find out that is reduce your expectations, perhaps, you know, see when you're seeing if something works for you, uh, so you don't despair in one effort and then don't try it again, or don't try and modify and improve what you're doing. But more broadly, I would say exactly like sex is good for a lot of things outside of sex. And there is a weird kind of bias to say, you know, sex should only be for connecting with a partner or for experiencing sexual pleasure for sexual pleasure's sake, or for the most amazing orgasm or orgasms, you know, how, how many can you have? How strong can you make them? And those things are fine, but it has a lot of applications outside of that. And we're really only constrained by the cultural norms of what we think is an acceptable way to use sex. So as long as you're consistent with your values and the way that you're using sex, or if you have a partner and they're on board, our partners and they are on board with the way in which you're using it. You just have to, you know, have that communication and say, Hey, you know, I may not be available for intercourse tonight because I'm going to use my orgasm to help me sleep. <laughs> you know, But being able to have that conversation as weird as it is, then they can say, actually, I'd like to help you tonight. Can you wait? You know, I'll brush my teeth. Give me one second. But being able to have those talks with your partner and saying like, yes, you know, doing something sexual, by myself or even with you, you may have a functional goal in part and just being explicit about that's part of what's going on and that that's fine, you know, and you're, you're helping me feel better. You're helping my mood or helping me sleep. And man, I appreciate that (laughs) in addition to all the sex fun that we have. So I guess it's not a single message as much as just, you know, encouraging partner communication around using sex in some of these ways outside of sexuality per se. Yeah, that is, I think a lot of people are hesitant to use sex in those ways, especially because they're worried about what does this mean? What does it mean? Am I sick? Uh, Is my partner going to be angry with me or upset with what I'm doing? It's like, 
I think generally, like if you have a basically rational partner and you can have this conversation with them and say, God, you know, I just really, my sleep is driving me nuts. I just want to try for a couple of weeks. Can we see if this thing I read about (laughs) help is going to mess up our sex life a little bit because I got to figure out the timing and like sometimes I may have accidentally masturbated before you asked me for sex. <laughs> yeah, those nights will suck. I'm sorry in advance. Or, you know, we may need to plan a little more for those few weeks to kind of help me try this as an intervention for myself. And so we just have to be able to have those conversations to try to use sex in a more broadly healthful way and to have the partner not turn around, you know, which this is often how people end up in quote unquote porn addiction treatment they're often not distressed by their own use. It's a partner who's distressed by their use. You know, it's how could you, how could you do this to me? And it's really about, you know, what that partner is assuming it means about them, which may or may not be true is unlikely to be true. And it's just being open and honest about functionally. Why is the porn there? (laughs) What does it mean to you? What are the parameters of use? And just being sure you're communicating about those things. So I think this is a similar kind of issue in that, as we start to develop more interventions that use sexuality to improve other health conditions, people are going to need to still have good communication around these things, you know, to be able to use them uh, to talk to the partners and figure out what is, what will work for them or to treat things as an experiment and say like, will you try this with me for a few weeks or let me do this thing that I read about realizing that it's going to mess up our sex from what it used to be for a little bit. Yeah. And using that, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to my clients all the time of, about using curiosity as this tool to reduce shame overall, that it's okay to be curious and open up the door a little bit, as much as it might be a little uncomfortable to maybe a little scary to try at first. If you use that curiosity, it could potentially benefit you both. And then being able to talk about it. Quick break from the action, folks. <laughs> action. <laughs> I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week, I bring you guests and, seriously, lots of sex nerdery. (laughs) Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout-outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E-R-I-K-A-M-I-L-E-Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. So when you think about like the messages that we're sent culturally, I mean, whether it's politically, whether it's the our puritanical, at least in America, that puritanical roots, like... I mean, when you have folks come in for, for research, like what, what barriers do you run into oftentimes as a scientist? So our participants, the way they tend to differ is they do tend to be a little higher sex drive, a little more sensation seeking. So they aren't generally people who are sex negative, for example, uh, that have those types of shame issues. But we do still have, like when we were doing a vibrator project, um, we were providing automated stimulation to the genitals of male and female And I used to kind of laugh because almost every guy, when we would set him up, he'd say, well, you know, I don't normally do this, but you know, it's for science, right? And I kind of laugh and say, yes, it's for science. Because he was clearly trying to communicate to me, you know, I don't normally do this. Like he needed me to know that as a man, he would not normally use a vibrator. Who cares? (laughs) 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 Um, 
but that's fine. You know, they're clearly what's happening is they're making themselves more comfortable by communicating this to me. And that's fine. But that was one, I guess that's come up and other things are just like kind of basic boundary violations that are not horrible, but in the sense of my participants often are so open that like we give them a gown to cover up and I come back in the room and they're not covered up. And I'm like, Hey, there's a sheet over there. And they're like, Oh, it's okay. I don't mind. I'm like, but you might think I might mind. Like (laughs) this is a two way kind of street. And so I, you know, in the lab, sometimes that gets highlighted to me of people making those kind of sexual assumptions like, Oh, you're a sex researcher. You must be fine with anything. I'm like, I'm not fine with anything. I asked you to cover up for both of us, (laughs) but it's just a, again, like a boundary communication. And so in those moments, same thing, like I have to make a call, you know, is it more shaming to ask this person to do this in this situation? Do I need them to do that? Has my interaction been such with them that I think I need to be a little more persistent and hand it to them and say, here you go, I'll come back in (laughs) when you're, when you're covered. So those kind of things come up even in sex labs. And I realize it's a situation where people have no idea how to behave, right? Like this is not something you do normally. It's not a doctor's office in that setting, that situation where you have some idea of like when you're supposed to take your pants off and how that's supposed to look. And then you get up on the table, you know, we don't do that. (laughs) So so I appreciate that it's an odd situation um, and I give people a lot of leeway in that sense, but we also have written in now to our informed consents, just really explicitly, like you may not flirt with the experimenters. What, and what does flirting mean? We define what that is. You know, and we say, if you just do this, you know, we'll ask you not to do that again. But if you do this, that's so egregious, we'll kick you out of the study immediately. And just really being clear about, you know, you're not here to, have a sexual interaction with the experimenter and people are generally very good with that stuff. Like they are so self-conscious anyway, that it's not an issue of them being inappropriate with us, but every once in a while, for whatever reason, they're trying to be open or just show us how cool they are. (laughs) They'll start conversation. Like we're not friends. (laughs) This is not a bar. There are hard boundaries, you know, in that setting to kind of establish And maybe that's a good metaphor for just, you know, sexual relationships in general. That is when you have someone new in your life and you're out on that third, fourth date, you're still getting to know like what is acceptable to them, what boundaries you might be comfortable crossing because you feel that level of safety with them or not. And I hope my research assistants, you know, have dynamite boundaries when they get out of my lab because we do a lot around, you know, how do you communicate with people in the setting when the boundaries are not at all well-defined and, this is not a situation they're likely to find themselves in. So I'm sorry, I think I wandered a little far of your original question, but that's what it made me think of. But I think this this bunny trail is absolutely completely important. And especially in the way, of course, with sex researchers, sex therapists, because I can tell you what, I know I get the DMs with the dick pics and I have to lay down those boundaries with people too. Like, hey, it's totally cool to ask me a question if you're curious about something, but I don't want pictures of your penis. Period. Just... I'm going to say it again and I'll say it in like 10 more episodes just so that people (laughs) get that message. But then it applies directly in their lives as well that that conversation is really, really important. And that just because you may be comfortable with something, the other person may not be. 
So when you think about, like, I, I know we had talked a little bit about some of the projects you have been working on or that are coming up. One of the ones that I'm pretty fascinated by is the orgasmic meditation work that you mm-hmm. are part of. And so you want to talk a little bit about that and, and what's coming up in that kind of research? So we just finished a two-year trial of orgasmic meditation that we would say is a mechanistic trial. And that is we brought in people who were already experienced orgasmic meditators And we recorded their responses and physiology before, during, and after an orgasmic meditation session. And to them, um, orgasmic meditation is basically, the core of it is manually stimulating the side of a clitoris for 15 minutes. Like, period. That's kind of it. (laughs) Just the, the, the straightforward, that is what this is. Yeah. And the only goal of the couple is to feel like to feel sensation. So it's not goal directed. They don't typically have a climax during that experience actually. And then they stop, you know, and kind of put everything up and they have lots of procedures around that to help make it safe and ensure consent and body comfort, et cetera. But that's the, the core of it. And so we've just completed that trial. We have a bunch of papers under review from that. But what we're starting is more uh, clinical look. So people who are orgasmic meditative naive who've not done it before and seeing what happens if you train them to do it and see how they do a month and two months out from coming and receiving that training. So this is in the truest sense using genital stimulation to improve mental health as, as a straight intervention. So uh, I absolutely love this study. You know, I think... Uh, our partners are interested in it for orgasmic meditation per se, and I'm happy to have them you know, interested in that. For me, it's like the big goal there is using the genital stimulation and saying, what is this good for? You know, outside of sex per se, because they don't think of that as sex. And I think most people would not define what it is as sex, you know, because it's not really goal-motivated. It's highly structured. So it doesn't look like or feel like sex in many ways. It looks almost more like sensate focus exercises that are used by sex therapists, just kind of a different way of structuring that. But it's really interesting, kind of the way they have their protocol set up. And I'm excited to see what we find. We're just the very, very beginning of putting in our ethics uh, request for that study. And I think that this is like a wonderful example of exactly what we were talking about in the beginning, that this use of of stimulation of the genitals to improve overall mental health and how that is absolutely possible. And I cannot wait to see what you all come up with. I mean, of course, we all have hopes for what you're going to come up with, but I'm sure that uh, uh, we got to let science speak, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I always joke with this. So, you know, if you've ever tried to meditate and you know, I don't know about you, but it's like the, you sit down, you're like, okay, focus on your breath. You're like, okay, breath. Okay. Laundry, science paper. Okay. Breath. You know, it's really hard to like kind of keep your attention on uh, what you're supposed to be doing. It's like, I don't think the attention part is going to be as difficult when someone has their hand on your genitals. And that may be one of the differential benefits, you know, is that you're a lot easier to engage when there's physical touch involved, especially in an area that's very sensitive and sensitized. So like the mechanism makes so much scientific sense that it should work. So yeah, I, I hope it does be curious to see uh, probably be a, I think we've got almost a year of data collection once that gets started, um, which we're not near yet, but yeah, it should be exciting to have a way of actually saying like, this is in a naive group, you know, they treated it as a treatment and this is what happened. 
And I will make sure that the the information about this will be in the show notes because I think that there's a video so you, folks can kind of see what what orgasmic meditation is and kind of what the protocol is so that they can understand like, oh yeah, this is this is fundamentally different from sex. As somebody who I'm a psychotherapist first, and and there's so many people that I've worked with with persistent mental health issues that have used masturbation or they've used some sort of stimulation to like refocus, change their mood, whatever the case may be. It'll be really, really kind of a wonderful thing to kind of have some science to say, like, look, this this is a thing. This is the thing you're doing. It makes sense. Yeah. It's not stupid. It's not the wrong thing to do. It's not, you know, inherently bad for you. I don't know. You know, it's like, sometimes I'm surprised the kind of the level of concern about some of those practices, but you, yeah, you, at some point you have to have the science behind it. You can't just say it's fine. Um, and yeah, that's one thing I would you know, love to get away from is it's still very, very common for when we see, especially women, but also men have uh, you know, increased numbers of sexual partners, for example, or a uh, higher number of one-time partners is even in therapists' writings now, they call that acting out, you know, and in still once in a while, they call it promiscuity. And obviously promiscuity is a horrible word that should not be in our vocabulary as scientists. That's nuts. But then the acting out too, I was like, that's crazy. Like the, <laughs> by whose definition? Yeah. Well, as though it's just in defining the behavior as inherently bad. And I said, I don't think you, you're not thinking about the functional utility of what they're doing. You know, that if it's grabbing their attention away from their traumatized feelings and they feel like they're in a safe space and they're able to express themselves emotionally, why are we taking that away from them? (laughs) Why are we shaming them for that? And obviously we want people actually safe and using condoms if they need to and all those things. But yeah, why would we, assume that that's a bad thing to do. Um, we need to understand functionally what it's doing for them and how to optimize it to be safe and most effective for what they need rather than just assuming it's, you know, acting out or promiscuous that that word and phrase just drives me crazy, but it's all over the sex addiction literature. You know, just, Oh, they're acting out, acting out by having sex. (laughs) Then attempting to take away this coping mechanism that they're using and then replacing it with nothing. Often, yep. Things so like we, we could be here all day on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do people find you in the world, and and what's new? What's coming? What's coming up for you? Yeah. So the base jump is my website, LibrosCenter.com. L-I-B-E-R-O-S Center.com uh, has all the links to social as well on there. And the next big thing is the other grant we're working on is something for post-orgasmic illness syndrome. We just got funded from the National Organization of Rare Diseases uh, to try and understand why some guys have flu-like symptoms for two to seven days after they climax. Very troublesome thing. Doesn't seem to stop them from being sexually active. Uh, <laughs> it's a good, strong motivating force, but obviously a nasty outcome that is not fully understood. And we're going to try and figure out why that's happening to them so that maybe they can get better treatments. I absolutely cannot wait to see the outcomes of this because this is something that is, I imagine that must be such a, when I've had clients with this, when I have read stories about this, I'm sure they are so perplexed. Like something that can bring them such pleasure can actually bring them such comfort and, and for days at a time. Yeah, no, it's every time we bring this up, people outside of the sex feel like, wait, what? <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> That's a thing. 
hence the rare diseases funding. You know, I think it's relatively rare, thank goodness. But that also, yeah, has meant they haven't had a lot of people looking at it in a good systematic way. So that, you know, there are very few data. And in general, these are going to be some of the first data we have on the inflammatory effects of orgasm ever. You know, we don't have those normative data. So we're going to get them. I'm excited about the project to be able to help those guys who are struggling, but also because it should be a data gold mine too, you know, of understanding what this physiology is doing and a lot of basic information we don't yet have. I'm going to be calling you to come back. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. And folks, if you want to find Dr. Prossi, I really want you to jump on that website and I'll make sure everything is in the show notes so that if you are a person that would like to become a participant or are interested in more information about everything that she shared with you today, I want you all to be able to find it. It's so necessary. (laughs) Thank you for the work you do and thank you for being with us. I appreciate the time. I hope it's helpful. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks for sticking around and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.